0: The scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 12:8 to 14. Would you please stand with me, out of reverence for God's word? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word.
1: Well, if you have a Bible in front of you or there's one in the rack right in front of you, go ahead and find that and uh, make your way back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, This is our final week in this series. I dare say it's been a bit of a wild ride uh, at times, never quite knowing what we're going to find as the the preacher has wrestled with life, but we come to the conclusion this morning in chapter 12, and we read in verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. That's the, if you remember, the ominous note on which Ecclesiastes opened back in, in chapter 1, verse 2, and now as we come to the end, it's the same note on which the book closes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, vapor, smoke, a, a mist that appears for a while and then is gone. From beginning to end, Ecclesiastes has forced us to take a cold, hard look at the disappointments and the instability uh, of life in a fallen world, in a world, uh, as the preacher puts it, under the sun. So here and now, what you and I see and experience and, and trudge our way through day in and day out in this realm, in a world that does not work the way that it's supposed to, ultimately because of human sin and rebellion. This book has systematically exposed the emptiness In everything that we try to look to for life and lasting gain uh, under the sun. Work, wealth, knowledge, pleasure, justice, relationships, politics, religion, success. The list continues. And in doing so, Ecclesiastes, I think, resonates with a deep longing and, and an unspoken sadness and even a quiet fear That troubles our hearts as we try to make sense of the inconsistencies of of what we call life. The fruitless and fleeting realities of life under the sun. We we get up, we eat, we go to work, we do our thing, we interact with people, we go home, we eat, maybe watch some TV, we go to bed, we get up, we eat, we go to work, and and on and on it goes. we we work hard. We acquire all sorts of stuff. We accomplish you know, great achievements sometimes, but none of it satisfies, and none of it lasts. We can't predict how life is going to go. We we can't control it. We can't hold on to it. We can't even understand it half of the time. None of it is secure. Life is vapor. The only thing that stands between us and losing our dreams are time and chance. And as we've seen in this book, everything eventually succumbs to them. And after that, the grave. This is the experience of Ecclesiastes. And it's your experience and it's my experience. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher. But is vanity, is vapor really the final word in this book? And the answer is no. It is, I think, the key theme of this book, the word itself occurring uh, some 38 times. But there's a method to Solomon's madness. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell puts it, if you are a fallen human, living in this fallen world, Ecclesiastes was written to depress you. It was written to depress you into dependence on our joyous God and his blessed will for your life. So there's a reason the preacher has pressed hard against us in all of these things, exposing the hollow dreams that, that we trust in for the looming disappointment that they are that is to teach us that the longing in our hearts for lasting gain and stability will only find its rest when we surrender to God in fear and obedience the lasting the, the longing in our hearts for lasting gain and stability will only find its rest when we surrender to God in fear and obedience that's the point of this conclusion in uh, chapter 12, 8 through 14, and as such, it's the main thrust of the whole book. So let's pray and let's ask God to open our eyes to see clearly what he's talking about here and that the Spirit might change our hearts as we see him more clearly. Please pray with me. Lord, this is your word, and we want to hear it. We want to believe it. We want to obey it. We want to find our rest and our hope and our peace in it. We want to be changed by you. And we want, Lord, to find rest for that longing. Open our eyes to see you this morning. Open our eyes to see you, to rest in you. And to know what it means to truly live, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, the final verses of Ecclesiastes, this, this ending section here, have an interesting history among readers and interpreters of the Bible. Uh, they're most likely written by an editor or someone who kind of took and compiled the preacher's wisdom writings uh, and wrote a short introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, or maybe all the way to 111, uh, and then this short conclusion in 12, 8 through 14. And one of the key indications that it was probably an editor collecting it and writing those the the beginning and the end is that he refers to the preacher in third person. He talks about what the preacher did as opposed to the preacher saying, this is what I did. So it's probably some sort of editor. And for some, these verses at the end of the book are the only sane lines penned in the whole thing. Uh, they, They see the bulk of the book is essentially... Uh, the unorthodox rantings of a depressed, self-indulgent man. And then the only reason it made it into the Bible is that this conclusion comes along and says, basically, ignore everything he just said and, and just fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, there are some who see this book that way. I think uh, strongly that that kind of exclusively negative evaluation is severely exaggerated. Uh, and I think we've seen that as in our journey. Now, the book is brutally honest, uh, brutally honest about how messed up the world is. And it, it's sometimes shocking and, and quite scandalous in the ways it makes its point. But it never completely leaves God out of the picture. In fact, uh, what we find in this summary in, in verses 8 through 14 is just that. It's a summary. It's, it's a A summation of where the whole book has already been going all along. We've already been told six times in this book to fear God. This is not new information. We've been told throughout that in the fear of God and in faith in his sovereignty, there is great joy in life under the sun, even if that life doesn't amount to much in our eyes. So there's much wisdom in these pages, and and that's what the conclusion tells us what the preacher has said in verse 8, how the preacher said it in verses 9 through 10, and why the preacher said it in verses 11 through 14. We've touched a bit already on the what, this this summary that everything is vapor, everything is vanity uh, in in verse 8. But think about how he communicates this message. Look with me at verses 9 through 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Uh, Phil Rikens summarizes this description of how the preacher wrote in terms of logical clarity, literary artistry, and intellectual Integrity. Now, those are big words, but let's think about what he's saying for a moment. The preacher wrote with logical clarity. He worked skillfully to arrange information and impart knowledge to us that we might be informed. He wants to help us understand his point. He weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs with great care. Now, we've had to wrestle pretty hard to understand some of the things that he's been saying in this book. But think about the arguments that he's made as he's tried to help us find our way in a fallen world. You know, Think of chapter 7. Who would have thought that attending a funeral might be more beneficial to us than attending a wedding or a party? You know, That doesn't make a whole lot of sense up front. But if we follow his logic, if we follow his argument, we see that, how a funeral forces us to think about what truly matters in life and where we're all headed. And so he's he's used his logic and his arguments to help us get the point. Or, you know, for instance, we think naturally, uh, just by our human default, that if we do good for God, God's going to do good for us. That's our, our default. But the preacher undoes our logic, showing us that both prosperity and adversity come from God's hand. Chapter 7, verse 13, that that life is not a performance for God where we try and make it up and put on the show so that he'll bless us, but rather whatever he gives us, good and bad, is a gift. So he he wrote with logical clarity to to unpack those ideas. Second, he wrote with literary artistry. He, He wrote his book with beauty in order to capture our attention and enliven our hearts. He wrote with beauty. Think about the imagery that he's used throughout this book. You know, using the endless cycle of nature in chapter one. You know, The sun goes around, then it comes up again, then it goes around, then it comes up again. Never it never crosses the finish line. And he's using that picture to illustrate the rat race we call human life. Uh, or the catalog of times in chapter three. You know, there's a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, Time to pluck up what is planted. It's a beautiful way to to communicate both that there's an order woven into this world and yet that we're not the ones who control that order either. Or the the picture in chapter 4, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That picture just sticks in your mind as you think about the importance and necessity of community and relationship. Or you can think about uh, the the very word picture that has driven the whole book along of vanity or vapor or mist to describe everything that we're trying to to hope in. Or the silly image of somebody trying to shepherd or chase after the wind and capture it. I mean, you think about what would that look like, somebody trying to do that. It's pretty goofy. And that's how he helps us understand the empty striving uh, that we have for lasting gain in this world. The colorful descriptions of foolishness that we've seen. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. Really loud, really annoying, doesn't amount to anything. You know. Or the lips of a fool consume him in chapter 10. He's so foolish his words basically eat his own flesh up. You know, he destroys himself. Or the somewhat humorous and somewhat uh, uneasy uh, picture that we saw last week of old age. And and the decaying house and estate as a picture of our bodies falling apart. The imagery that he's used throughout this book to, again, capture our imagination, to enliven our hearts to what he's talking is quite breathtaking. So he wrote with literary artistry, finding words of delight. Third, the preacher wrote with intellectual integrity. He spoke truth in order to deepen our dependence on God. He spoke truth in order to deepen our dependence on God. And think about the great truths that he's declared to us throughout. The brevity of life. 12.1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Life is short. It's a vapor. The, the holiness of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Five, one. The sovereignty of God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In 7.13. The wickedness of all humanity. Uh, chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The beauty of joy. There is nothing better than that a person should eat And drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This I saw is from the hand of God. These great truths that he has imparted to us to deepen our dependence on God. Now, some of these truths we would just as soon ignore, to be honest. Uh, They're a little uncomfortable when we think about them. But the preacher has been honest enough to face both the disappointments of life, his own failures and the mysteries of God in order to impart to us the truth. He wrote words truthfully, even if that truth hurts, even if that truth hurts. And sometimes it does. In fact, that's actually one of the reasons that he wrote the book, according to verses 11 and 12, to sting us and to stabilize us, to sting us and to stabilize us. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 together. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, the imagery he's using there, uh, particularly in verse 11, comes from the world of agriculture. Uh, we don 't use goads very often anymore, but you just think of a of a pointy stick like a cattle prod that you would use to kind of move an animal along, get it to go the direction you want it to go that 's what the words of the wise do to us. they sting and and sometimes it hurts, but it also guides us and sometimes we need that extra little encouragement to open our eyes and see the foolishness of our ways that goad that that corrects us and and redirects us. The firmly fixed nails here, that's been understood in a couple of different ways. Some see it as just a parallel to the goads, like pounding a nail through a board and then using that to kind of prod the, the sheep along. Uh, more likely I think it's simply the picture of stability. You know, something sharp can be used to prod you, but it can also be used to to drive in hard so that it's firmly fixed and, and gives stability to stabilize you. Think of a tent peg firmly driven into the ground or a nail, firmly embedded in a piece of wood. That thing's not going anywhere. The words of the wise sting us, but they also stabilize us, which we need in a, in a fleeting and fruitless world. So the the collected sayings of wisdom, or perhaps those who master those sayings, are firmly fixed in a floating World, as as one author puts it. Life may be a vapor, but wisdom can help pin us down, giving us a place to hang our experience. So, the aim of the preacher, his wisdom, is to sting, to stabilize, to prod us, and to protect us. And the source of that wisdom is identified as the one shepherd. The one shepherd in verse 11. And again, people debated, you know, who's that referring to? Is it, is it the preacher? Is it someone else? Well, in Old Testament wisdom literature, and I think here in the context of our passage, God is the source of wisdom. God is the source of wisdom. So the one shepherd is God himself. And what I think is is pretty bold and intriguing here. Uh, is that the editor of this book is noting very explicitly that while the preacher is exploring life from from the ground-level view, trying to make sense of, of, of what's going on, uh, the same shepherd who guided the rest of the writing of Scripture is at work in him to guide him so that his words are God's words when he's done and finished. That's incredible. That's amazing. To, to read the words of Ecclesiastes, this is not just Solomon's reflections. This is God's word. To read Ecclesiastes is to hear our shepherd's voice. That's amazing. And if these wise words are the words of the one shepherd, God, then we are wise to pay careful attention to them and to walk in obedience. And that's what verse 12 is telling us uh, now, the warning here against the weariness of, of making many books is true enough by itself. It's kind of the theme verse of every college student and grad student and so on. And you know, I think there's something around more than a million new books published every year right now. Uh, it's incredible. <laughs> it is a dizzying idea. And that's true enough by itself, but I think the point is is not so much study in general, but going on and on in in new research and new writing without taking to heart the wisdom that's already been revealed here. So, as Douglas Wilson puts it, if we've not been mastered by a short book like this one, the long line of remaining big fat books will be nothing but weariness in the head. We, We need to embrace what God is saying in this book. We don't have to go redo Solomon's studies and research by ourselves. So what will it take then, not so much to to master this book, but rather to be mastered by it? What does that look like? Where is this whole thing headed? Well, verses 13 to 14. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Where do we find hope and lasting gain and stability in an inconsistent and unpredictable world? Through our surrender to God in fear and obedience. As Augustine famously said in the opening prayer of his Confessions, you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And surprisingly, uh, somewhat, the, the shape that that rest in the Lord takes is fear and obedience. Fearing God and keeping His commandments, as the preacher puts it, this applies to every human. Or or perhaps even stronger, this is the whole duty of humanity to fear God and keep His commandments. As one author states, it is only in relationship to God as God and in submission to His will that we find ourselves to be truly alive. And on the road to full humanity, this is what it means to live, to fear God, to keep His commandments. Now, we all know what it means to live in fear. We're pretty good at that, if we're honest. You know as we make our way through it through an often disappointing, uh, frustrating, fruitless world, we are often uh, dry, driven by fear. Again, if we, if we let ourselves be honest for a moment. Which, and that fear shows itself in all sorts of wonderfully dysfunctional ways in our lives and relationships. I mean, We fear not getting our way. We fear having our dreams crushed before our eyes, and that drives us to, to make certain decisions. We fear being taken advantage of by others or being hurt or betrayed. We fear the pain and humiliation and shame of failing. You know, what if I don't... Get that job? What if I let this this person down again? And we fear the rejection that often comes with that failure. We fear being found out for who we really are. If someone could really see behind the mask, what would they do? What would they say? That terrifies us to be found out. We fear the unknown where will I go to college? Where am I going to come up with the money for this bill? We fear what we can't predict or control, so we you know we, we fear uh, we fear all everything <laughs> so we walk through life with our shield up and our sword out our shield up to either you know retreat back in self-protection lest somebody take advantage of us or hurt us or betray us and or or, or just kind of glibly appeasing everyone just to kind of keep things okay. Or else with our sword out, we attack in, in self-promotion. We redouble our efforts to achieve our desires and our dreams, and we really don't care who we run over in the process because we're not going to be taken advantage of. We, we clamor for control as if we could kind of you know, force life into submission on our terms. So so we we become, at the end of it, a law unto ourselves. We we, we brush aside whatever wisdom someone like Solomon is trying to sell us. We repeat the study on our own terms and and we indulge ourselves in whatever we think is going to give us life. We are afraid. And that fear drives us to do all sorts of self-protective and self-promoting things. But fear is not the problem. Fear is not the problem. It's what we fear, or rather whom we fear, that matters. As Paul Tripp uh, reminds us, these relational or situational or location fears are only ever put in the proper place and given their appropriate size by a greater fear, the fear of the Lord. Allowing yourself to be twisted and turned by whatever fear seizes you at the moment is an unwise, unstable, and unproductive way of living. Only when God looms larger than anything you're facing can you be protected and practically freed from the fear that either paralyzes you or causes you to make foolish decisions. See, the hope and stability and lasting gain that our hearts long for amid this vapor is found not by responding to this fear or that one in self-protection or self-promotion, not by you know, repeating Solomon's whole study for ourselves on our own terms. It's found in surrendering to God in fear and obedience. Surrendering to God and fear and obedience. And sometimes that language of fear is pretty confusing for us. You know, why would God, who's loving, want us to kind of be afraid of him and so on? But we need to understand what the Bible means by fear. And we've talked about that a little bit throughout this series. But fearing God, it involves a certain tension between recognizing on the one hand that you know, God's holiness His majesty, his justice, his righteousness. So recognizing that. And then on the other hand, also recognizing his mercy, his love, his grace, his patience. So he is our king who deserves our obedience. He's also our judge who has the right to judge whether or not we have lived in obedience to him. We saw that last week, and, and the, pe- the preacher draws special attention to it in the final verse of this book. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. As an all present and all knowing God, nothing escapes his sight. As a holy and just God, he can and he must. Judge sin and treason against his throne. He must deal with what's wrong and make it right, including the sins and atrocities that humans commit against one another. So, God is a holy king and judge, and yet, if we are united with his son, Jesus, by faith, he is at the same time our father our Father, who cares tenderly for us according to His love and His mercy and His grace. If our faith is in Jesus, Jesus who was the perfect Son, Jesus who lived before His Father in perfect righteousness and obedience, in our place, doing what we failed to do, we failed to fear God and keep His commands. Jesus did that perfectly. And then took that failure we committed on himself on the cross to deal fully with it, to exhaust God's holy anger against us by paying the penalty in full. And then rising on the third day to give new life to those who were rebellious, uh, self-centered, self-protective people. Jesus did that, if we have trusted Christ, if He is our Savior and our hope, and we're united with Him in faith, then we have what the Apostle Paul calls the spirit of adoption as sons. The spirit of adoption as sons. Through faith in Jesus and by His Holy Spirit, we've not only been rescued from our failures and our sins, we have been brought into God's own family, we have become His children and his heirs and servants of his kingdom. So, this king is at the same time our father. And fearing him, respecting, revering him, means recognizing both of those things at the same time. So, it's the tension one would have if you grew up in a royal family. You know, On the one hand, you present yourself before the king in respect and awe and in submission to his authority as king. And then that same king invites you to come sit on his lap and cuddle with daddy. That's the picture. The very arm that holds the scepter by which God will execute justice and righteousness on this earth is the same arm that holds us close to him in safety and protection and love. The invitation to fear God is not asking us to cower in a corner like a frightened child hiding from his alcoholic father getting home from work. That's not the picture. It is an invitation to bow before God in his beauty, his majesty, the fact that, that this is our king and this is our father. And then to run to him and cling to him in love and in safety. And yet, fearing God is, is more than just bowing and clinging. It is also serving Him in obedience. Fear God and keep His commandments. There's an obedience that comes out of our reverence for God. You can't claim to love and respect God if you have no interest in keeping His word. i be like, claiming that you love and respect your parents even though you're sneaking out every night when they're not watching and doing all sorts of things they told you not to do. That's not very loving and respectful. Rather, fear and love show themselves in obedience. They show themselves in obedience. As one author writes, to fear God embodies faith and hope in God as well as genuine love for God. And when one by the gift of God, possesses the fear of God. Sin loses its sweetness and strength. And obedience to the word of God follows naturally because it becomes the delight of the soul. When God is bigger and more beautiful to us than anything in this world, then our love for him will naturally overflow into obedience to him. Just as Jesus told his fathers, his, his followers, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." John 14. So we obey God not because, not in order to get loved, not in order to somehow make it up to Him or win His approval. We obey because we are loved, and because we do love, and because we want to see God honored in our lives. We obey because our love for him is growing increasingly greater than our love for sin. We obey because we've tasted the instability, the dissatisfaction of all that this world offers. And we know there is nowhere else to go to find true life and lasting gain than in him. We obey because God's grace in Christ is powerful. It doesn't leave us the way it finds us. It changes our hearts and warms them to the Lord. We obey because God is King and Father. It is our duty and our delight. And we obey because we trust that God, even though we are weak, we are helpless, living out our days, In a world of vapor where our work isn't remembered and it doesn't amount to much, we trust that even though that's true of us in our weakness, that when our work is in the Lord, it will not be in vain. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. That our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is in fearing God, our King and our Father, that we find what it means to truly live. Now, as we close, I just want to recognize that some of us, some of you, may have had a pretty bad experience with your father. And so this kind of illustration of God as father just rings hollow for you. It doesn't really put the picture together. Um, And if that's your case, you need to know that God is not the father you had or never had He's the father you were made for. He's the father you were made for. He is the father who knows you, who knows your heart, your longings, what you love, what you desire, how you're wired. He's the father who listens to you whenever you're speaking. He's the father who knows even the ugly things in your heart and still loves you. Through his son. He's the father you can trust to be there, to protect you, to provide for you, to seek you out when you're lost, to love you enough to discipline you in order to bring you back. He's the father who sets upon you the same love and affection that he sets upon his son Jesus because you have been united with him by faith. He sees in you the same righteousness and holiness and pleasure that he sees in his own eternal son. He is the father that you can fear in the most beautiful and liberating way possible. One of the reverberating notes that that this book Ecclesiastes sounds throughout and I hope remains ringing in our ears is that God is not like us. We were made in his image, but he is different. He is set apart. He is holy. We are creatures. He's the creator. We make mistakes. He does everything in perfect accordance with his purpose and will. We break our promises. He always keeps his word. We bumble our way around on earth. He rules all things from the heavens. We can't make sense of life, of what's right in front of us. He sees the beginning from the end. We are needy. He is Completely satisfied and glorified in himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are servants. He is the King. We know very little, far less than we would ever admit. He knows and sees everything that is and was and is to come. Our lives on earth are transient, a vapor. God is eternal. In short, we are humans. He is God. We are humans. He is God. And he is worthy of our awe and our respect, our love, our devotion, our delight, and our obedience. He alone can provide the hope and the lasting gain that our hearts Long for amid this vain world. So may our hearts find that rest in Him. May He receive the glory due His name. Let's pray. Lord, you know the different ways that a book like this can sting us. You know how it has exposed in some of our hearts things that we're trusting in instead of you. And that we're afraid that if we really let go of those things and take hold of you, that somehow life won't go the way we want or expect. And so we still cling to them. We want control. And yet we know in our hearts that it's a It's a sham. God, give us the grace to open our hand, to let go of the things of this life, the things of this world that we look to for hope, and to take hold of you. And to know what it means to be at rest, even when the world around us is is falling apart. Lord, you know how some of our hearts have been stung as we think about relationships that we have found our identity in. And how those relationships have have disappointed. Whether it's a parent-child relationship. Whether it's between friends, between spouses, between co-workers. Jesus, remind us that you are enough. You are sufficient. You alone can provide the lasting gain that we need and we long for. And so we don't have to exact it out of that other person. We're free to be taken advantage of. We're free to be, uh, to be betrayed. And though it hurts like nothing we can express, it does not destroy us because it can't take away you. God, whatever it is, in whatever way, you have used this book to sting us, Lord. I pray at the same time and in the same way, you would stabilize us with it. You would anchor us in your love, in your grace, in your mercy, in your compassion. That even as our hearts break when this world disappoints, that our hearts would be satisfied and delighted in in resting in you who will never disappoint us. God, may we know what it means to live in a fallen world as your faithful, beloved children. Thank you that Christ in his life, death, and resurrection has made that possible for us. Be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in this congregation. We ask it in Jesus' name.